Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie. You might not have realized this, but apparently in the early episodes, I was saying whatnot all the time. In fact, I was saying it so much that people made a drinking game out of it, and a listener even bribed me to stop saying it. So this week, in honor of that bizarre verbal tick, I present to you Whatnot the Button. That's right, BHP has its own punk rock buttons now, and right now there are three different kinds. There's a standard BHP button, a hipster Hadrian button, and a Whatnot button. And they're all cheap with free shipping in the continental U.S., So if you want to sport Hadrian's dapper mug, or if you want to show your love of whatnot, you can do so at my site, thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And if any of you are still playing the BHP drinking game, whatnot, 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 whatnot. Good luck. All right, so when we left off, Cherdich and his son had recently arrived on the island, and the Battle of Mons Badonicus had just taken place. So that's pretty exciting. And Gildas said that it was followed by years of peace. But then we have Procopius telling us that the Germans were fleeing from Britannia as late as about 30 years later. And from the archaeological record and the scattered references and written texts, it doesn't seem like there was a lot of military warbands invading during this period. But rather, as we're going to discuss in this episode, it looks more like there were farmers who were migrating at best. And this actually might have been happening for some time, since we're told that the Saxons have been landing on British shores for at least 100 years. So when we look at the written record, even though Gildas claimed that the period after Mons Badonicus was peaceful, it looks like things were still going on. We had Germanic tribes leaving the island, we had people moving in, we had all kinds of people shuffling around. There were things that were still happening. So let's go to the point after Mons Badonicus and talk about what we know from that time. Well, during this period of peace, we're told that eight years after Mons Badonicus, Cherdich and his son Chinerich fought with a British king named Natanliod, and they killed him. So for those of you who've been keeping score, we now have two battles that were won by Cherdich and one dead British king in 13 years. And again, this is during the period of peace, so it doesn't seem overly peaceful. Now, last week, I mentioned that Cherdich was the founder of the House of Wessex. But I also mentioned that he apparently wasn't influential enough to be listed as a Bretwalda. However, his house would eventually come to be the starting point for the English monarchy. So he's hardly just a footnote. So what else do we know about this guy? Well, for one, thanks to the archaeological record, we know that there were Saxon settlements present in the area before the date of his arrival. Now, as you probably remember from last week, the dates that we have aren't the most reliable. So this might just be poor work on the part of the scribes, and actually Cherdich arrived earlier or something like that. But it also might indicate that there were Saxons there before he showed up with his five ships. And not only that, but some of these sites show signs of continuity of occupation between the Romano-British era and the Anglo-Saxon era. What I mean by that is that there are sites in the area that look like they remained occupied throughout this entire period, and they transitioned from being culturally Romano-British to being culturally Anglo-Saxon. So that's an interesting twist on the story, isn't it? It doesn't really seem to reflect the behavior of the bearded, bloodthirsty warbands we imagine. I mean, we've been told about how Cherdich arrived on the shores of Britain and just proceeded to kick some butt, and he eventually became the king. But here we have two battles in 13 years, we have this period of peace, but it's not that peaceful because we have Cherdich killing Natanliod, so it's all a little bit strange and, frankly, a little bit muddy, and not as crisp and clean as the stories we'd be later told by Bede and others. Well, how about this? 
Chertich is a unique name among the Anglo-Saxons. What I mean by that is that it doesn't appear to have any English counterparts, and it doesn't really seem English at all. However, it does sound rather British, though altered to suit the tongues of the Anglo-Saxon poets who recited genealogies. For example, it sounds a bit like Keratic, which was an old Welsh name. So what's going on here? Well, there are all sorts of ways that Chertich might have been half-British. Maybe the Saxons, much like the Vikings, took wives from the local populations, which is probably putting it a little bit mildly, and then gave their offspring native names. Maybe he's part British as a result of some prior integration between the peoples, thanks to the over 100 years of contact, at the very least, through raiding. Maybe the name is merely a cultural spread, with the parents using a name they liked. I know a woman who's named Kyoko, and she's just named that because her parents liked the name. It doesn't reflect any connection to Japan whatsoever. So maybe it's something like that. Maybe Churditch was just a Briton, and through some strange series of events, he ended up leading some Saxons. And if he was a Briton, maybe over time, the poet simply lied and claimed he was a Saxon, since it's better than admitting that their ruling line, something that was quite important, wasn't actually Saxon at all. Maybe it's none of these things. Maybe there wasn't even a Churditch, and he was just a construct to establish their legitimacy, in a similar way that other rulers pointed to Woden. We may never know for certain what was going on with this character, but what we do know is that his name is rather strange, and by the time he's said to have arrived, there were already Saxon settlements established in the area. So that alone should really pique your interest about this guy. Anyway, so we're told about six years later, Churditch's nephews, fellows by the name of Stuff and Wickgar, showed up in Britannia. Now, these guys appear to be players in the West Saxon drama due to their ability and also their lineage, in addition to having awesome names that have tragically gone out of style. Seriously, you don't meet too many people named Stuff these days, and I think that's a mistake. Though you can't really use it as a middle name or it'll sound weird. Magnus Stuff Maximus just doesn't work and sounds rather lewd if you ask me. And Stuff Jeffers sounds a bit like a personal attack. But it does sound awesome as a singular name, like Sting, Bono, and Prince. Stuff. Just saying. Anyway, history. So, in addition to having awesome names, Stuff and Wickgar were also adept fighters, and it seems like they arrived with a few ships and fought the Brits at Chertesy's Oar. Wait a minute. Chertesy's Oar? You might be asking if this is the same place where Churditch got into his first fight against the Brits when he arrived 24 years earlier. And you'd be right to ask. Because it is. So apparently we have a sequel to that famous arrival. I'm honestly not sure what was going on here. Whether this was a scribe duplicating things and getting it wrong, or whether this actually happened. But it is interesting and it seems like Churditch's ore might have been occupied by Brits following his win and that these same Brits put up a fight against his nephews, which would indicate that they weren't on the friendliest terms. Or maybe the scribes got it wrong, and Stefan Wittgar fought other Saxons that were living with Brits and reconquered the area. It's hard to say. But don't forget that this also was supposed to be happening in the so-called period of Gildasian peace. So this whole thing is rather odd. And of course, like with much of this period, there are conflicting messages going on. You hear of peace, then you hear of battles, you hear of areas being taken, and then they get taken again, and apparently it's from the same people. It's just a big mess. It's hard to follow what's actually happening. And actually, this whole concept of Gildas's claimed peace is strange in general, because there was also a fairly significant boom in Germanic settlements that occurred prior to and during that period of peace. 
I mean, sure, there were also Germanic settlers leaving as refugees, but it also seems like they were coming in and probably also expanding their holdings as well. Now, granted, these weren't large, wealthy, or well-organized. They weren't like the British settlements at Cadbury Hill or Roxeter, for example. But that small trickle of settlers was turning into a flood. Things were changing all over the place, and land was probably changing hands from time to time. So these battles that we're hearing about probably reflect that. Consequently, I suppose that the need to retake Chertice's ore sort of makes sense in that context. Especially when you consider that Chertich wasn't yet in power. It wouldn't be until five years later, which is 519 CE for those of you keeping score, that Chertich and his son Chinerich would fight the Brits at Charford and become leaders of the West Saxons, what some would refer to as the Gawissa. But for the purposes of this podcast, we'll just call them the West Saxons. So there probably were still swings in power and control. And in that case, maybe Chertice's ore fell out of West Saxon control and had to be retaken by Stuff and Wittgar. It's possible. And there are portions of Wessex that weren't under the control of the House of Chertich for a very long time. And we know that because we see them being referred to later on as territories that were taken by Chertich's grandson. So like I said, this was an era where there were wild swings of power and nothing was certain. And when you consider that, and you consider the character of the people who were coming over another possibility comes to mind. It's entirely possible that Chertich, when he first arrived with his son, was more of a farmer and a settler than a warlord. And you can find support of that in the written record. After all, it would take him 29 years to become co-leader of the West Saxons along with his son, Chinerich. Hengist, this man was not. You might recall that Hengist became the ruler of Kent in just two years. Chertich needed another 27 so perhaps that's why he wasn't listed as a Bretwalder while Alla was. Because Chertich, in large part, while he might have been a leader, wasn't really a war leader. Now obviously, the descriptions in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle are focused primarily on providing authority for ruling, especially for the House of Wessex, and are also written by individuals with motivations that could well lead to omissions, fabrications, and exaggerations. So, of course, Chertich is mentioned only in terms of military victories. We don't hear about whether or not he was really good at administration. We don't hear whether or not he was the best farmer in the land or anything like that. We just hear about his military victories. But given the scope of time and the gigantic periods of silence, he just doesn't seem like a particularly ruthless or warlike leader, does he? And neither does his son, for that matter. And given the emphasis on farming and cultivation that the Anglo-Saxons had... It just makes me wonder if this guy was more of a settler than anything else. So, 29 years after their arrival, and after three known battles, Chertich and Chinerich are now the leaders of the West Saxons. The year is 519-ish. And then we have another eight years of peace, or at least silence, and then Chertich and Chinerich fought with the Brits at Chertich's lay. Chertich had a hell of a thing about picking battle sites with a home field advantage, didn't he? I mean... Only fighting at places that were named after you does seem like a bit of an unfair advantage. Okay, fine, fine. They almost certainly named the locations after the fact. But the point is, he won again. But of course he did, right? They're not going to sit down and list the failures of the founding member of their ruling dynasty. They're only going to mention the wins. So we have another win. And then, three years later, Chertich and the West Saxons conquered the Isle of Wight in 530. And at this point you might be a little bit surprised and be wondering who they fought there, since you were likely taught, thanks to what Bede had to say, that the Isle of Wight was settled by the Jutes. Well, it isn't specified who the West Saxons fought, 
whether it was the Jutes or some other Germanic group of settlers, or the Britons. It could have easily been any of them. This was a messy period in history, but regardless, the Isle of Wight was now under West Saxon control. Four years later, Churdich would die. Leadership then fell to Chinnerich, and the Isle of Wight would be granted to my two favorite Saxons, Stuff and Wittgar, and they would rule the area. And then something horrific happened a few years later, in 540. The Plague. This was almost certainly the bubonic plague, and it came screaming out of Egypt and into Europe. Like with many plagues, it would have catastrophic effects, and some have argued that it was particularly bad for the Britons. And if the Britons were more susceptible to the plague than their Germanic counterparts, that could account for why we start to see an increasing shift in power away from the Britons and towards the Germanic settlers. And this susceptibility could be because of genetics due to their backgrounds. Or it could be from something as simple as cultural differences. For centuries, the Romano-British lived in towns and larger communities, many times with some sort of connection to a trade route. Their Germanic neighbors, on the other hand, appear to have preferred small farming villages. With that in mind, it seems like the British communities, at least the ones holding on to the old ways, could have been particularly susceptible to communicable diseases in that instance. So that might explain the acceleration. However, all that really would have done is accelerate the changes that were probably already happening. From the record, we see that the communities were already going through a ton of changes around this point, especially in the East, where contact with the Germanic settlers would have been the greatest. And one of the ways we see signs of this shift are in the graves of the residents of the area. The most obvious change is that we start to see funerary practices that are quite alien to Romano eyes of the time. Cremation was something that maybe your grandfather's grandfather might have done, Maybe, but it hadn't been fashionable since the 3rd century or earlier. And suddenly we have people being clothed, placed on pyres, and cremated, just like the old times. Not always, though, and not everywhere. Just in some areas. Other areas had people who were buried along with grave goods. Now, burial was something that the Romano-British did, but grave goods, not so much. You didn't find too many Romano-British graves that had goods in them after about the mid-4th century. So again, old ways are coming back, or new ways are coming back that are just reflective of the old ways. And here's the really interesting part. You can sometimes find both burial graves with their precise Roman alignment, as well as cremation graves, which are in the Germanic style, in the very same cemeteries. We've also found Anglo-Saxon graves that contain bodies with coins in their hand, which was a Roman custom. So right out of the gate, we're finding things that shake the myth of a brutal invasion, occupation, and genocide. And that's something that's going to keep happening. As we look deeper into these stories, we're going to find that everything is a little bit more nuanced than we assume. We're told of a very black and white story. We have Churdich, the warrior, coming over with his ships. We're told of the Angles, the Saxons, and the Jutes occupying specific areas. Gildas talks about basically fire and brimstone massacres. Everything is pretty black and white from the stories we're told, but the record doesn't really reflect that. And only a few minutes into discussing graves, we're already seeing reflections of that. Now, something else that changed during this period was the burial of infants and toddlers. The late Romano-British engaged in this sort of burial, but you don't see much evidence of infant and toddler burials from this period. Why? Well, it can't be because suddenly there weren't any childhood deaths. That's just unreasonable considering the rates of childhood mortality at the time. Rather, this is again indicative of a cultural shift, where burying young children wasn't prioritized. 
Don't forget that this is a time of great chaos, economic strife, and there was probably a lot of poverty going on during this period. I know I just said that the Anglo-Saxon migration was more nuanced than the stories of Gildas and Bede, but the fact of the matter is, is that Rome had collapsed, so at the very least you have economic strife and a good amount of chaos. So there might not have been enough resources to spare for the burials of young children. And we also see that poverty reflected in another aspect of the graves we found. Many of the buried dead weren't placed in coffins now. And I suppose that makes sense, right? Getting planks now that sawmills were either gone or at least rare would have become much more difficult. And if you did have a plank, maybe you should use that to build your hall, not to bury somebody. But something to keep in mind here is that we don't see a lot of uniformity outside of individual communities. Some communities cremated, others buried. Some had communal cemeteries, others had individual cemeteries. It was all rather personal, even within the same valley. Which, at least for me, calls into question Bede's easy organization, where the Angles had one part, the Saxons had another part, and the Jutes... Eh, no one cares about the Jutes. I mean, certainly I think we're seeing migrations of these people. And some of them probably landed at their respective locations. For example, we find brooches that seem Jutish that are located in Kent. But at the same time, it seems like it was more personal than that as well, with people from various areas settling all over the place, rather than a strict ordering that Bede talked about, especially since we found graves that contain goods that originate in a variety of different locations, not just Anglia or Jutland or wherever. And within these cemeteries, we also see changes in things other than funerary rites. We also see changes in fashion, both in the items that were being worn and also in how they were being worn. So when we're looking at all of this, it just looks like, at least to me, that there are too many differences in culture for it to be the large tribal migration that we're told about. So if it wasn't a big tribal migration or invasion, what was it? Well, I think that a reasonable answer for all of this is that we're seeing small families coming over and settling and striking up arrangements with the locals in ways that are probably unique to those specific families. Some would mix, others wouldn't. Some would fight others would live in peace. I imagine it had to have been something along those lines. And even if a family group or village was fairly insular, it would eventually have to marry outside of the community unless they wanted to get into some rather creepy marriages. So you'd probably have spouses coming from or going to different communities, and thus bringing new cultural elements with them. Reflecting that, we see that styles started to change, and items of clothing started to be worn differently. It's even possible that local unfamiliarity with Germanic styles started that change in fashion. One person puts on a brooch in the wrong way because they're just not familiar with how to wear the brooch. Someone else sees that and thinks it looks really cool, and bam, you have a change in style. And we don't just see Germanic styles. As late as the early 6th century, women were still wearing and being buried with British-style bracelets. So this wasn't just a one-way street. It really looks like the migrants were influencing the locals and vice versa. And also, one group of migrants probably influenced another group of migrants, and so on and so forth. I imagine that England, in large part, was becoming a melting pot where you had migrants from a variety of locations, as well as locals, all mixing together over time to form a new, distinct culture. Now, was this always peaceful? Hell no. We know that some of the early migrants fought with the locals, and they probably also fought with each other from time to time. But from the archaeological record and from the scant written records we have, we aren't seeing signs of prolonged and constant warfare. Furthermore, there aren't a lot of indications of military organization in those early days. 
When you think about it, military organization is something that you can only afford when you have a lot of money on hand. And we're going to talk about this in a minute, but those early migrants didn't have a lot of cash on hand. And on top of all this, you even have archaeological records that indicate that the grandkids and even great-grandkids of the Romano-Britons stayed in the East and were living alongside the Germanic migrants. It's quite a different picture than what we were painted when we were children, isn't it? So putting the myths aside and looking at the evidence, I have a hard time finding a story of war here. Instead, I keep staring at a story of individual families and of integration. Actually, especially of integration. And that probably took a little time. And it was probably tied a little bit to generations. Maybe your parents were strictly British or Germanic. But would you hold on so tightly to the old ways? Or would you adapt to the new times and adopt some of the mannerisms, items, and cultural aspects of your neighbors? Only the cool ones, of course, but would you go and adapt those ones? Probably. That's probably how it happened. One of the places that you can see hints of that is at the cemetery at Queensford Farm. This is a really special dig, because there you have an Anglo-Saxon-style cemetery that contains bodies that have remarkably similar teeth to the bodies buried just down the way in the old Romano-British cemetery. And the similarities in the teeth are the result of genetics, which means that the two groups were related. So there you have two groups of people who are related, but one looks Romano-British and the other looks Anglo-Saxon. So the population wasn't pushed out and replaced. We're not looking at an Anglo-Saxon cemetery that's comprised entirely of foreign bodies. These are essentially the same people. They just look Anglo-Saxon now. So styles were changing, and the local population was adapting to the new styles being brought in by these new neighbors of theirs, at least in some areas. And interestingly, there also aren't signs of serious political organization at this point. It's hard to imagine because we've grown up with Hengist and Alla and Churdich. And Hengist probably was something of a warlord, and Alla might have been right up there as well. But Churdich? Well, he could well have been a farmer who stepped up when it was needed. A leader, sure. But really not what we think of when we talk about kings. And even when we look at Hengist and Alla, they probably weren't kingly in the way we think about it. Many of the communities from this early period were terribly poor. And the truth is, you need stability and some amount of wealth to be able to afford the so-called luxury of social stratification. In those early days, we're probably looking at people who closely resemble refugees just trying to survive, rather than individuals trying to set up a political dynasty or anything along those lines. We're talking about families, not kingdoms. Farmers, not monarchs. Conversely, though, you see areas where the boundaries of the old Romano-British farms were still being maintained at this point. This could be the result of many things, but from the surface, it really does look like, even though the old Romano-British system was collapsing, some of the old landowning rights of the elites were still being maintained, which might have ruffled a few feathers. And that, along with the fact that the migrants seemed to be more focused on farming rather than political organization, might have been the trump card for the Anglo-Saxon culture. The Roman system was effective, but it required that everything worked well. It was a really complex system, so when one thing broke, things went sideways quickly. And in this instance, everything had broken. So the arrival of Germanic family groups that were largely farmers and self-sufficient would have probably been quite attractive to the Romano-British who just had their world turned upside down. If you're having a hard time imagining their situation, try and relate it to our modern day. Let's say that society collapses. For example, let's say that all of a sudden all the oil runs out. 
that would pretty much grind everything to a halt, right? So the skills that made you valuable to the city-driven economy would quickly become useless, wouldn't they? For example, who needs research and podcasting experience in an era where you just need to figure out a way to repair your home and keep food on the table? Well, if I had some neighbors who knew how to run a farm, I might end up cozying up to them and try and learn from their experience. That might have been the motivation for some of the Romano-British. And there probably were also economic reasons behind it. I mean, at the very least, even if they had weird customs and languages, it was probably preferable to living under a ruthless patrician class and contending with merciless tax collectors. And given that Gildas was complaining about decadence, we have no reason to believe that the elite had turned over a new leaf and were sharing with the lower orders more freely. Don't forget that the lower classes of the Romano-British were surprisingly unhealthy compared to their Celtic counterparts, and much of that would have been related to food quality and quantity, or lack thereof. And we'll get into this later on, but the Anglo-Saxons were comparatively healthy to the Romano-British as well. So maybe the Germanic settlers offered an attractive alternative to the Roman system, at least for the lower orders. But of course, this is all speculation. And even if I'm right, it almost certainly wouldn't have been how all of the Romano-British came to integrate. But I think those are possible motivations. And in support of an agricultural reason for integration, there are indications that some British communities in the early migration period were cultivating new crops. You also see evidence of Germanic settlers raising British animals, though whether that's due to integration or just outright raiding isn't really clear. So like I keep saying, I think this is all a very personal affair rather than a monolithic tribal invasion that resulted in genocide. Well, what about the names, I can hear you asking? There are a ton of Germanic names in England. Where are the Romano-British ones? Doesn't that show that the Brits were pushed out? Well, not necessarily. We'll get into linguistic changes and what might have caused that shift later, but there are a couple things that we can get into right now that address the changes in names. First is actually there are more British names that survived in the regions where early migration took place than they did in the West, where it was left basically untouched by the Anglo-Saxon culture until the 8th century. To put that another way, more British place names survived in areas that were heavily settled by the early migrants. That's kind of strange, don't you think? If a change in name was an indication of a massacre and the annihilation of a cultural group, you'd think it would go the other way, wouldn't you? But it didn't. An easier explanation is that, for the early period, naming was largely based on description. So Portland would be called, well actually Portland is a pretty good description, but for the sake of argument, maybe it would be called rainy plain that produces excellent food and beer, right? And that's basically how the Brits and migrants handled naming for a while. What shall we call this place on a hill? How about high place? That's a great idea. Done. Next place. Like Jamie Redfern mentioned in the cage match ages ago, Roman culture wasn't particularly creative. Well, the Germanic settlers, at least as far as we know, seem to have followed suit with that lack of creativity. But it didn't last forever. And by the 9th century, so a long time later, as in the time of Egbert and Alfred, people started renaming stuff. And not just in the old English-speaking areas, but also in the old Welsh-speaking areas. There was probably just a shift in fashion, and they realized that high place sounded stupid even in Latin, so they started renaming places to describe the people who lived there and their size and importance. As with most changes in fashion, this meant that the old style started to die out. And of course, now that English was the dominant language in the East, you have a lot of English names in that area. 
and conversely, a lot of Welsh names in Wales. But that doesn't mean that this is proof of genocide, but rather it probably just reflects shifts in culture, language, and style. So basically, I don't think that the names reflect a crushing Germanic dominance of England, but rather just cultural shifts. And in part, that's largely due to language, which we're going to get to in a later episode. Anyway, back to the 6th century. So by the end of Turgish's reign, and with the probable arrival of the plague, we're seeing an island that isn't really under assault from an organized tribal invasion, but rather an island that is peopled by locals, migrant families, and maybe older immigrant families that have been there for several generations. And an island that's dealing with sporadic outbursts of violence between its inhabitants, but probably not any sort of sustained war or genocide based upon ethnic groupings. In fact, it's likely that we aren't looking at the clear ethnic groups that later writers would tell us of, but rather a blend of groups that altered their behaviors and took actions against their neighbors for personal rather than national or even tribal reasons. I don't think that we're looking at an age of kings here. We're looking at an age of farmers. So maybe Churdish was a farmer, and maybe is at least part Welsh. Not exactly the story you grew up with, is it? Okay, as always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast.gmail.com, and you should definitely come and join us at Facebook. We're at facebook.com slash britishhistory, but if Facebook isn't cool enough for you, there's always Twitter. Just look for at British Podcast, and if you think this whole social networking thing is a huge fad, we have the forums. Just go to thebritishhistorypodcast.com, click Get Involved, and click Forums, and we'll see you over there. All right, thanks for listening.